This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. What a shocking, uh, horrible uh, night it was for uh, all those young people and their parents in uh, Manchester, England last night uh, in the aftermath of what was a, a started out as a wonderful evening, an Ariana Grande concert. Many of those young people, uh, probably their first concert, uh, parents worried enough as it is when they send their child to their first, uh, their young person to their first concert and and uh, to come uh, face-to-face with terrorism is not uh, something that you expect to happen uh, at an event like that. But that is, I guess, the nature of, of terrorism. It's to put fear into people. Uh, we've got uh, a couple of guests we're going to talk to this morning. I want to remind everybody that uh, the phone lines are open here at 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You can uh, email me, jwest at westpromedia.com. You can follow me on Twitter at westpro. Uh, as well. Uh, 22 people uh, are reported to have been killed, uh, many of whom are uh, children. Uh, Police have uh, arrested a 23-year-old man in connection with the explosion, although we're told that the the bomber uh, himself uh, obviously died in the uh, in in the event itself because it was a suicide bombing. So there's a lot of um, obviously a lot of people scrambling around trying to make sense of all of this, trying to put all the uh, you know, the piece of the puzzle in place and, and you know, the questions of why and uh, why that place and why not somewhere else uh, all come to mind. And uh, that's, I guess, what, uh, you know, terrorists do best. They make you sit and wonder what's going on. John Thompson is a security consultant with the Strategic Intelligence Group, and he joins me on the line now. John, good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, John, you know, one of the first uh, questions that people have in the aftermath of a terrorist attack like this is, uh, why did the why did they choose that venue? Why did they choose that place and to do what they did? Well, the I mean, the, the purpose of terror is terror, and, and the terrorist uh, half the time he's trying to uh, you know be atrocious. He, he's I mean, the the, the root uh, word atrocity. For its shock value. So in this case, he's gone after a society's uh, children, especially you know young girls. That's a, that was the focus of the attack, and you know most of us can imagine nothing more horrific and evil. You know, last night I was uh, w- watching some of the coverage, uh, tuned into CNN for a little while, and saw Tom Fuentes on, who is uh, a former FBI uh, director, and he said something interesting. He said, you know these. These suicide bombers that are are connected to uh, these terror groups, uh, they're kind of just turned out. They're trained up. They're uh, programmed, indoctrinated, and then turned out into the into the world to go and do basically whatever they want. That, in other words, there isn't somebody on high sitting there scripting it and saying you're going to go to Manchester tonight and you're going to blow up outside this concert. These people do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. Uh, he he likened them to zombies who just go out and and pick their spot and do their thing, and uh, I think that's the part that su- may surprise a lot of people uh, is is that you know that's kind of the way this this operates that it, it's not as scripted as as people think it is. No, uh, I mean the uh, big league, well organized, well directed terrorism is almost impos- impossible these days. Um, largely because uh, we're too good at intercepting communications. Uh, so the terrorist groups, again, they, they indoctrinate people, train them, and, and let them loose. 
which is the, the Al-Qaeda model. And then the ISIS model, um, and also uh, some branches of Al-Qaeda, is that you don't even need to turn up anywhere for training camp. You just can learn it all over the Internet. The, uh, the bomb-making design was probably quite simple. It looks like it was a, a suicide belt bomb. And uh, um, just a question of uh, mixing up homemade explosives, following the, the standard pattern, and uh, the basic tactics. I guess the next question, John, is, is can you prevent something like this? Is there, is there really any way to prevent it? Um, big picture, yes. Small picture, no. Um, and, and the big picture is something that, you know, I mean, terrorism is always ideological. The other point is there are always people who are prepared to be terrorists, uh, and so they shop for the ideology uh, that allows them to act out. But this is uh, this may have been, again, uh, almost completely autonomous. But the, the one thing the British police are doing right now, and remember the British police have more experience in dealing with terrorism than almost any other country except perhaps for Israel. Uh, but the Israelis do the same thing. If when, you, when you have a terrorist attack like this, you basically call in every detective, every investigator you've got, and, and sick them on the problem. I mean, right now there are not, you know, five or six people in uh, uh, the local police department working this. There are hundreds coming in from every point of the U.K., and they're, they're going to take every angle and investigate it as fast as they can to find out all the dimensions. I mean, were these two guys operating on their own? Was there someone who recruited them? How, did, how was the bomb made? Uh, did, did anyone notice and not say anything? And just start you know, finding all the threads they can and start following them. Well, the next thing that it, you know everybody's wondering is, and it, and this is the you know this is the payoff for terrorism is where's the next one going to happen you know uh, it was only weeks ago that you had that uh, that car drive into all those people um, in London and now you've got this one where's where's the next one and I think if you're somebody uh, in the UK you're you're thinking wow they've got a real thing for the UK all of a sudden well they got a real thing for everybody remember there's been frequent attacks in, in France right. Um, they'd love to hit the United States more often than they have. Um, and, <laughs> pardon me, there, there are people who'd love to uh, hit Canada, too. Uh, this is especially true with the, the autonomous lone wolf. Uh, I hope you hear the quotation marks around lone wolf. Um, but the, the loners who follow the teaching uh, manuals and the instruction guides and launch their own attacks without any reference to them. And we know... And they know that uh, they're almost impossible to stop. So the point is that every one of them who launches an attack like this sets the bar uh, for even more bloody attacks. And we're going to have to get used to this in some ways. And part of the, the, the short-term solution to terrorism is the uh, refusal to be terrorized. And uh, I, I think it's not so much you know lighting candles for Manchester and saying we're with you. It's... Uh, Basically, um, every news producer who doesn't put someone weeping on the camera and interview them, everybody instead look for people who are determined, angry, resolute, not going to change. And then the best stories are some of the ones that are already coming out of this incident is the way the whole community sort of self-mobilized last night. You know, and that included the, the, some of the, the Muslims in that community, you know, taxi drivers who are driving people home for free. Right. 
you yeah. know, and stuff like that. And it was a big collective middle finger raised at the attackers. Yeah. John Thompson is a security consultant with the Strategic Intelligence Group. Uh, we reached him in Toronto. Thanks for this, John. Have a great day. You're welcome. <clears throat> Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The aftermath of the Manchester attack last night, uh, killing 22 people, a crowd of about 17 or 18,000 people at an Ariana Grande concert uh, in Manchester, uh, many of whom I'm sure it was uh, their first uh, big outing as uh, a coming-of-age thing, which is very common. Many of us uh, know that if we have uh, youngsters of our own uh, going out to that first concert and, of course, as parents worrying about um, them getting in there uh, safely and getting home safely and all of that stuff. And, of course, uh, every parent's worst nightmare came true for a a huge number of people last night in in Manchester. You heard uh, our uh, expert, John Thompson, uh, in the last segment, uh, he's a security consultant, uh, saying that terror is terror. And, uh, you know, anything that strikes fear into the minds and hearts of uh, the population uh, is what terrorism is all about. It's about fear. It's about being afraid. Um, let's bring in Jeff Semple. Uh, he's our Global News uh, Europe uh, Bureau Chief uh, to talk uh, about the latest on the ground. Jeff, are you there? Hi, Jamie. Yeah, good to be with you. Good to good to talk to you, Jeff. Give us the latest uh, information that you've got. Well, at this point, I can tell you I'm standing about as close as anyone has been allowed to get to Manchester Arena. Police tape still covers the entire city centre here. We're still being kept about half a kilometer away and that of course just another sign that this remains a very live investigation police believed that there was only the one attacker last night the suicide bomber who blew himself up but they also believe that he must have had some support some help so to that end we have seen one arrest this morning a 23 year old man who was picked up in south manchester no charges or details released about that yet though and we've also seen in the last hour or so a statement released from the so-called islamic state claiming responsibility for last night's attack now they released no evidence to support that claim but you know it is a similar tragic pattern that we have seen too many times over the past couple of years, of course, in Brussels, in Berlin, in Nice, in Paris. But the, a big difference this time, Jamie, is it appears that the target last night was children, young children, known to be the fan base of pop singer Ariana Grande. Of course, we've heard that 22 people were killed, dozens were injured, and police have said some of those victims were indeed children. And one, we've had confirmation, is an eight-year-old girl. It's uh, highly, highly disturbing. Um, it, it's just a, an awful a thing for uh, all of us around the world to wake up this morning to this news or those that were up uh, later last night uh, catching, uh, catching the news. Jeff, what do we know? Do we know any more details about uh, the, the width or the, the size of the investigation and how far that fans out? Um, you know, it was only weeks ago that we had the terrorist attack in London uh, where the, the terrorist uh, drove a, a car into, into people on a bridge in London. Um, have officials there, have police officials indicated, uh, you know, the depth and breadth of, of this investigation outside of Manchester? Or is it all contained uh, within that city? Well, I think, you know, certainly we've seen federal anti-terror police active in this investigation already. We've heard the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, uh, calling an emergency COBRA meeting, it's called, an emergency cabinet meeting this morning, her second 
such meeting in the past couple of months, as you mentioned, the first one coming after that attack on Westminster Bridge, targeting British Parliament at the end of March. Five people killed in that case. And even before that happened, Jamie, this country was on its second highest level of threat alert, the severe threat, which means a, an attack is considered highly likely. Well, most people would think London would be the obvious target, of course, one of the major capital cities in the world. Manchester, still a big city, but much smaller by comparison, the third largest city in England, of course. Um, and so I think a lot of people here are surprised to see that it has been targeted in a similar vein. And it sort of raises that horrible question that if it can happen in Manchester, if Manchester can mm -hmm. be a target, it can really happen anywhere. And in this case, we have heard that the explosion happened in the public foyer just outside of the actual arena itself. It was clearly timed, deliberate for maximum impact. It came just as those thousands of people were streaming out of the concert just minutes after it had ended. Um, but it's not clear, based on the location of the attack, Jamie, whether this the suspect, the, the, the suicide bomber, would have had to go through any kind of security checks. He was still on the periphery of the arena itself, which again raises the question, how on earth security officials can it protect us from an attack like that? Yeah, exactly. You wonder how many layers of, of checkpoints do you have to uh, set up uh, uh, in terms of a perimeter around any venue, a concert venue, a sporting venue. I know that there are, uh, you know, there are lots of uh, event venue places uh, this morning all around the world. Uh, asking themselves that question and, and thinking, what do we have to do uh, to prepare uh, today, this evening for our for our events to uh, to increase uh, security? Jeff, what uh, you know, we know what the reaction has been by the prime minister and by law enforcement officials uh, where you are in uh, in Manchester. But what about the, the people on the streets? Uh, how are they reacting today? I, obviously, they're horrified. But have you had a chance to speak to? you know, the people of Manchester in the streets and get a sense of uh, what they feel about this. Is it anger? Is it sadness? Is it fear? Is it all of those things? Yeah, I think it is all of those things. I think more than anything, people are walking around stunned. They are still in shock here early this afternoon. Uh, and you can see it on their faces and, and hear it in their voices. Uh, this is the deadliest terrorist attack to ever strike Manchester during peacetime. Um, and, you know, the other aspect to all of this is the fact that many people here who were at that concert last night are still trying to reconnect with family members, if you can believe it. That concert hall holds about 21,000 people. We heard it was a sellout. And when that explosion went off, people ran panicked in all directions. And now, some 15, 16 hours later, some family members are still trying to find their loved ones who were separated from them. Hashtag missing in Manchester has been trending on Twitter in this city with people posting names and photos, desperately hoping for any information. We know that the dozens of injured were taken to at least six hospitals right across the city, but certainly some parents we've been hearing from are now facing this prospect as the hours continue on here unable to reach their children and now wondering and just horrified to think that they may in fact be among the injured and perhaps even the dead, Jamie. Can't even imagine what they're going through. Jeff Semple, uh, thanks very much for spending a few minutes with us. We appreciate it. Take care. Anytime. Thanks, Jamie. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
Well, for the next, uh, I don't know, 50 minutes or so, uh, we're pleased to uh, welcome back to our studio Hamilton Police Service Chief uh, Eric Gert. Uh, Chief Gert, good to have you back in. It's been a while since you and I sat uh, together. Uh, it's really nice to see you. Yeah, great. Nice to see you back, Jamie. And uh, no disrespect to Bill, but uh, yeah, I know your uh, credentials, both for media and CH and now an independent and uh, some of the media consulting you're doing. So uh, great to see you. Thank you very much. And I know this is a, a very popular uh, segment uh, in our program. Uh, I guess you're in here on a monthly basis uh, doing these uh, these town halls. Uh, this is a tradition that began a, a long time ago with uh, with Glenn DeCare and before that uh, the police chief. And, and it's an important um you know, important public service that that you're doing. Really, we're giving you the opportunity to come on the air and do it. But it it's important to connect with the community. I know you're a big believer in that. Oh, very much so. And uh, you know, th- this forum gives us an opportunity to respond directly to questions. Obviously, if we're prohibited because of criminal trials and things like that, that's another thing. Uh, but the general message about public safety, driving safety, uh, personal safety. Uh, these are all very key pieces of uh, what we provide as a service. So we just came through uh, a long weekend. So I, I, the, the place I would like to start is with how how was the long weekend? Was it crazy? What did we uh, What did we find out in terms of impaired driving and general? nonsense out there. I would think the long weekends are busy for the police service. Yeah, they generally are. And uh, I guess one of the disappointing things is the number of impaired driving we had over the weekend, including drug impaired driving. And, uh, you know, we, we continue on this campaign. We know that the age group that's the highest in terms of repeat offenses and recidivism, uh, criminal term, is uh, really an older category, uh, generally 35 to 50 years old. Uh, so I don't know if the message is getting out there. I know for our younger clientele it is, but there's still a broad range of those uh, who consume either alcohol and, of course, any illicit drug. And they're both included in the criminal code in terms of prohibitions. It's impaired driving by either drug or alcohol. It's um, it, it's a huge issue. And when you tie in, um, I know it's a separate uh, discussion, but when you tie in distracted driving, as well to those other factors, boy, you've got a recipe for disaster in a hurry, don't you? Oh, definitely. And if you think about somebody who's impaired, the reaction time is diminished. If we add in, as you say, the factors about the cell phones ringing or they're trying to text, and boy, it just it is a recipe for disaster. But really what we're interested in getting the message out today is, you know, drug impaired driving on the horizon with the potential legalization of marijuana. And I know that the government's struggling with how to take uh, samples, what the limit is, because of course it's been established for ethyl alcohol with a blood alcohol concentration of 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters of blood, um, or over 80 as they call it. There's different scientific designations, but the whole point is that they know that uh, that range that you're going to be impaired. Some jurisdictions, particularly in Europe, are at 50 milligrams. 50 milligrams. Some are down to 30, and some are absolute zero. So with the range of drugs, either stimulants or depressants, that are on the horizon. Uh, whether it's, you know, anything from heroin to cocaine to marijuana or combinations thereof and combinations thereof with alcohol, um, it's uh, a big concern to be out and driving a vehicle that weighs almost two tons. All right. I want to talk some more about uh, about the drug thing. Uh, do you know, is there, any, are there, is there any advancement being made on the development, let's say, of, uh, of roadside tests that would be able to test for for marijuana or other other drugs. Obviously, marijuana is going to become a, a, a big thing. So where are we at with that? What do you know about that? Yeah, currently we've been using drug recognition experts uh, for about uh, eight to nine years now, I believe. Although that um, 
Uh, those provisions for training existed before that. But in Canada, it's really expanded. So we do have drug recognition experts trained. So if you get arrested based on physical signs, we can then uh, arrest you, bring you in for those physical tests. And, of course, they're trained to see, you know, is it barbiturates, is it a stimulant, what's the nature of the drug, and they can do those determinations uh, based on their training. So we have that now. Uh, what the government is wrestling with is either the carbuchal swabs, where you would do um, a swab of somebody's inside cheek, and then, of course, you can do an analysis on that for whatever the particular drug is, just to substantiate what the physical signs show. And are, so a person presumably, uh, I know this is all somewhat theoretical, but a person who was showing signs, uh, I'm, I'm supposing that an officer could uh, detain that person, make an arrest, bring them in, further testing would be done. But do we have anything at the roadside similar to uh, a roadside test uh, in development or close to? It's in development now. I know they're testing out a number of pilot sites. Right. We're kind of waiting on the results to see what happens. And certainly there's hu- huge interest from the policing community around those tools to assist us. And because of the nature of drugs uh, and so many that could be out there, as I say, um, and then the proportions thereof, uh, it gets very complicated very quickly. Well, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about um, we're gonna talk about the opioid uh, crisis, which is not uh, unique to Hamilton, obviously, but it's is a big problem in 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 cities and towns right across our country. Uh, the medical community is is you know really engaged now in in trying to help curtail the use of opioids, you know, where it isn't absolutely necessary. Um, but I, I guess the um, the question I have is. What is the predominant drug, street drug these days? Is 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 it cocaine? Is it heroin? You know, most of us don't engage in or around any of this kind of thing. What are you guys dealing with on a, on a daily basis? When people hear cocaine, they think of it as being a drug of the the rich and you know uh, affluent and that kind of thing. Paint a picture for us about what's going on out there on the street. Yeah, and I have to rely on our front line. I mean, yeah. obviously, I'm not doing the day to day enforcement out there. But I do know that in our jurisdiction, our jurisdiction, cocaine is still uh, a high quantity drug that's uh, that people get arrested for, uh, in terms of not volume. Like I'm not talking about you know three keys or four keys, but personal use. But mm-hmm. also, we're looking at those kind of seizures too. Uh, methamphetamine is, has picked up. Uh, heroin has increased. Where you know. 20 years ago, it was really diminishing, but of course, uh, you know, it's related to that opioid uh, family, so it's re-emerging. And then, of course, uh, Oxycontin, but then uh, they made them not crushable and things like that. You couldn't get the high. And uh, now we're seeing the mix of uh, whatever, white powder, with fentanyl or car fentanyl mixed in, and we've seen the lethality of that. So um, in this jurisdiction, it was crack and it was cocaine for a number of years. Uh, it does vary in terms of supply and what's available. You know, there's t- there's a lot of uh, different ways of thinking about the, the drug problem, if, if you will. Addicts will inevitably try to f- find ways around everything. You know, if the if the drug companies start making the things that can't be crushed, they'll find some other some other way to get on something to get the high. So it's difficult because, you know, we in society have to ask ourselves, do we want to solve the problem by having police make arrests and put people in jail and penalize them when they're addicts who have a real disease, or do we need to put more resources in terms of into prevention, into mental health, and that kind of thing? What would your argument be 
as the chief of police of uh, the city of Hamilton. Uh, definitely. And, you know, crime prevention is one of our key assets in, in the Police Service Act and what we're meant to deliver. I'll just quickly go off uh, uh, topic here just slightly. We I was, do that a lot when I'm on. <laughs> we do. <laughs> so thank you. I was a chief of police, <laughs> Canadian chief of police convention, probably about five years ago. And the keynote speaker gave an address, probably about a good five minutes. And it talked about all the merits of crime prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention where the pound of cure, all that type of stuff. And at the end of it, and it sounded very contemporary, he said, um, just so you know, he said, I cited this uh, case. Uh, this was a speech delivered in 1899. So when you look at the theme of prevention, it goes way back. The difficulties usually with prevention is showing immediately the metrics about what disappears. But to your original question, when we're looking at addictions, when we're looking at strategies, and we're working on some of this work with the community right now, is looking at what is the best preventative piece. For me, um, you know, when we talked about, let's just talk about arrests. If I end up arresting the grandchildren of the offender that I arrested when I first started this job, to me, uh, that's a huge disappointment. It means you didn't, you weren't effective. It didn't change anything. The family dynamics continued. If you can do that preventative piece and see a change, that's definitely worth it. But you've got to be patient because some of these interventions take five, 10 years. If you look at our approaches to mental health right now with our mobile crisis rapid response team, again, life-threatening situations either to the person themselves or to the public. We're interested in, in uh, you know, having the least amount of force used de-escalation. Let's get the person the help they need. Let's not clog up the the uh, uh, the, the hospitals mm-hmm. and all the various other players that go where we have more pressing priorities. Um, so what's the better intervention? Same thing here. Um, when we talk about harm reduction uh, for opioid use, uh, I'm not interested in putting anybody to death because they're an addict. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, however, from an enforcement perspective, uh, we have to look at people who are distributing these drugs. It could be using or not. But if they're lethal drugs, we need to do something about that and seize the drugs. So I think it is a multi-pronged approach. The prevention piece is a big piece of it. And if we get kids not using in the first place, if we got, and, you know, we just had a presentation on this at our Ontario Chiefs of Police session by uh, Detective Constable in the OPP. And some of the sources, and I know the medical community is working on it, you may have legitimate use of opioids for pain, but then people become addicted and then they start to seek out street drugs and go down that. And, you know, if you speak to people with lived experience, sometimes that's the route in. Well, there's things you could do preventively to diminish that, and I get that. Um, anyway, it's I think it's a way, place to go. Prevention. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton Police Chief Eric Gert uh, in studio with us here for uh, his monthly uh, Chiefs Town Hall uh, meeting. Uh, good to have you here after a, a long weekend. And we were saying at the beginning of the show. Um, you know, it was, I guess, not a great weekend when it came to people um, uh, drinking and driving. Tell us about yeah, that. Yes, so we had 13 breath tests this weekend. Uh, four decided to refuse, which, of course, is a criminal charge in and of its own. So you can actually be charged, if people don't know, with impaired driving. Um, obviously, you can't uh, proceed with an over 80 charge because the person refused, but refusing a breath test is a separate criminal offense. Um, and then, of course, we had one drug recognition expert. Uh, it's actually Halton that helped us out with that. Uh, we'll help uh, other jurisdictions depending on the availability of our, we call them DREs, drug recognition right. experts. In terms of impaired driving st- uh, statistically or demographically, uh, you touched on this again at the beginning of the show a little bit, but let's review that. Uh, most of the people that find themselves in trouble for impaired driving are in what age group and are they male, female? What do we know about that? Yeah, it is a broad range, but if we look at kind of the... Um, 
the area that we'd focus on where we're seeing repeat offenses is really that 35 to 50 year old age group. Uh, and you would have thought the message gets through either through MAD Canada or um, you see with uh, kids quite often pre-drinking, but they'll arrange for taxis. Um, and we see it at Hess Village and other places where, mm-hmm. you know, the evening doesn't start till 11 o'clock. Well, quite frankly, I'm in bed by then. But um, <laughs> but for that Me age too. group. I even was uh, in yeah. those days. But they'll make, they'll make arrangements, you know, designated drivers. Sure. We're seeing that. So we commend that part. Uh, there's still still some risk with drinking to a level of intoxication where your own safety's at risk. That's a separate issue. Right. Um, but, yeah, that, that older age group, and it is a mix of male and female. All right, let's go to the phones. Jack's been waiting. Hi, Jack. Go ahead for Police Chief Eric Gert. Good morning, Chief Gert. Good morning. Impaired driving is still a big, big problem, not only here in Hamilton, but across the country. I agree. Would you agree that the penalties for impaired are still too weak? Uh, I don't... I don't know because we do have mandatory penalties uh, for both suspension. Uh, yeah, the, yeah for I, I know the mandatories, but, but they really suck. Okay, so and that's. What would happen? Yep, go ahead. What would happen if, for a first time penalty, automatic $5,000 fine, automatic five year ban on driving, your vehicle gets impounded and sold at auction, and if it ever happens again, everything doubles? Mm hmm. How would that be for penalties? Well, I think in some European countries, to your point, they do have um, penalties that are that severe. I do know that it continues on uh, in spite of that. Uh, is there diminished uh, driving offenses? Um, I'd have to see, but again, to compare something like, I don't know, Sweden to us, maybe very different. Sweden, of course, and uh, they use quite a few bicycles. Uh, well, when, when you look at the number of people here in Canada that get killed yep. by drunk drivers, yep. I think a lot of people would agree to those type of penalties that I just mentioned. Yeah, no, agreed. And I mean, that's one for the legislators to come up with in terms and of the increased likewise, penalties. And likewise, what are the police doing about going after the legislators and saying, hey, these penalties are not strong enough. We have to up, up the ante. Yeah, largely we advocate through two main groups in Canada, and one is the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and the second is the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. And they do have committees dedicated to um, driving and traffic safety, and largely those are the bodies that make those recommendations. So as I was just uh, talking about, those are the bodies that are looking at what are the roadside screening devices Never mind ethyl alcohol now, and though uh, I certainly take your point, now we're looking at all the other drugs that may be out there. So uh, we really got to stay on top of having the tools to get their officers to make those roadside stops and then proceed with it. If you look at the case law, and having been a former breath tech, if you look at the case law and the complexities of uh, impaired driving investigations, um, it's really quite challenging uh, because of the number of people who have been for the courts. Uh, we had a period of time there where people were testifying, uh, raising a reasonable doubt, we'll call it, and the case law said, well, you know, if you get somebody to come to court and say you only had three drinks when you might have had nine, um, you know, even though they're drinking, I'm not sure how they kept count because uh, I have a hard enough time keeping count of, you know, how many pops or whatever else I have, never mind drinks when I'm drinking. So we continue to force those issues um, where we can and get the legislation changed. So I'd agree with you. Is, is that going to dry up everything? Uh, my sense would be no. Jamie already talked about prevention. 
we really do have to look at those preventative strategies for not getting behind the wheel in the first place. All right. Thanks for the call, uh, Jack, and uh, and the questions. 905-645-3221 or star uh, 9900. Uh, Chief, we've, we've got less than a minute before we have to take a break here uh, for news. Um, I want to just touch very, very briefly on the gun violence uh, thing that that seemed to spike uh, in the last couple of weeks. It gets people fearful. They start, uh, you know, hearing story after story, incident after incident. Is this something that we need to really worry about, or was this sort of a, a, an unusual anomaly, this sudden spike of uh, gun violence? Is this typical of uh, Hamilton? Is something we need to be really concerned about yeah, at this the, point? Certainly the stats weren't typical, yeah. um, and uh, we've got to look to, you know, how do we solve these crimes? We know in other jurisdictions it's on the rise. Uh, we've seen it in Toronto. Uh, we've seen it in, in Peel Region. Uh, I don't know about York specifically, but I know both of the chiefs have spoken to those issues in those jurisdictions. And, of course, Toronto had a shooting with two people killed over the weekend. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all need to be concerned about it. And, you know, let's look at uh, reporting a suspicious activity. And, again, you say, well, you know, what's that? Uh, you know, if I see something unusual, well, let me talk about that. At the recent Holly Avenue shooting, remember the public did phone it in. We had officers respond. One of the officers, for example, uh, identified a stolen car while they're approaching the house, has the wherewithal to take the keys out of the ignition, which is really good. And then we made two arrests at that scene. So, so the reporting is very important. Call and report. All right, we'll take a short break. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Eric Gert, uh, again, Chief, uh, thanks for coming in today and doing this. Appreciate it. By all it. means. Uh, great questions, Gene. All right. Let's, um, let, let, just before we get to uh, Roy, who's uh, waiting on the line patiently, appreciate that, Roy. Uh, let's just touch on the opioid crisis. Um, we know that the medical community is now uh, working on new guidelines for, for prescribing opiates uh, to help people with uh, chronic pain and that kind of thing. They're, so they're, they're trying to do their part to, you know, uh, mitigate um, the number of prescriptions going out. Uh, this just seems like an overwhelmingly huge problem for law enforcement on the streets. Uh, give us uh, an idea what's going on. And you mentioned earlier it's countrywide, if not uh, certainly North America or even beyond. Uh, it's a huge issue. So I know that the mayor has recently convened an opioid roundtable. And, uh, you know, the interesting point is they're all the perspectives. We have probably about 25 people at the table, uh, including the coroner, uh, public health, uh, those who treat addictions, um, the health sciences, uh, treating physicians at ER. I mean, it goes on and on. And part of it is developing that strategy. You looked to your point earlier about prevention or harm reduction in the first place tracking it appropriately and that looking at dispositions that we can help people uh, so they uh, don't uh, fatally overdose. Right. Okay. Let's go to the phones and Roy. Hi, Roy. Turn your radio down. Okay. So we can hear you and you can hear us. Roy. Okay, Roy, go ahead with your question quick. Uh, yes, Chief. Um, I've had incidents where I've been being harassed uh, up in Stony Creek uh, since November. I've made several reports. As of Saturday, they actually lit fireworks under my car and on my porch, trying to burn my house down. Um, very fine officer came out last night talking to me. Um, I, I just hope that this is going to be taken very seriously. Um, we weren't home at the time. Uh, if we were, some house could have burned down, car could have exploded. Um, we have video. Um, it's just I asked the officer if this is our said It's just a misdemeanor. The throwing of the eggs, maybe that's mischief, but when you start putting 
fireworks and things under my car, I think that takes it a little further. Uh, okay. How do you feel about it? All right, Roy. Thanks for thanks for the question. Uh, pr- appreciate that. So oh, maybe, no, obviously, maybe uh, we can talk about investigative sure. uh, uh, procedure in, no, a, any, in something like yeah, that. Yeah, anytime you're dealing with that, and as you say, mischief, the arson have to be termed, uh, determined by the investigator to see you know <clears throat> those pieces of the evidence that compile that and whether it meets the test or not. Of course, it's not our test. It's both the criminal code how it's defined and then how the courts have uh, decided on those cases through the years. Um, so that remains to be seen in the investigation, but certainly, yes, take that investigation seriously. And to your point, if you have fireworks that are underneath the gas tank and, you know, that you heat that up, depending on what happens, uh, it, it's all very serious. So I, I think the fact you've reported it, uh, you know, you've got the response. That's what we want to see. And we'd like it, Dan, just like you would, I'm sure. It's hard for people, uh, Chief. And they, they, they report because they've been taught to report. They've been taught, most of us have been taught to trust in the, in the law and in law enforcement enforcement and be law-abiding citizens. So so we do that. Uh, most of us won't have that many contacts with uh, the police service in our lifetime. Uh, and, and when we report, there's an expectation that something is going to be done. And very often people don't hear back. And it, does that create uh, problems, do you think? Uh, uh, on an ongoing investigation, we will rely on the prime investigators, whether it goes to the frontline or the divisional detectives, which in this case it probably will. The fact uh, that you've got a video set up is really wise, and certainly that has helped us tremendously, uh, you know, of late with the availability of, you know, all the forms of digital recording of issues. And that gets us uh, who the suspect is, if there's a license plate, if somebody pulls up in a car, all those type of things, how many were involved. Uh, So those preventative steps that you've taken uh, to safeguard your property and your well-being uh, it certainly helps us in the investigation. Yeah. How do you feel about uh, about body cameras on on police officers? I mean, we 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 have to. Say, there are cameras everywhere. You just said it. You know, most people have them all over their houses. They have them in their hands. They have GoPros in their cars. Um, how do you feel about about that? It seems to me like it might be the logical next step. But I want to hear what you have to say. Yeah, we're currently bringing back report back to the board. Uh, I was tasked with that in terms of a a small, mid, and large deployment and the mm-hmm. costs involved. It is costly. I'll bet. Because of the memory, there's a lot of um, requirements in terms of uh, vetting of that material, third-party interests, uh, quantity of information. Uh, probably the analogy I use the most is, you know, and, and being a bit of a film buff, is I look <laughs> at what you see on TV, and when you think about what you're watching, you may be getting four, five, six different shots in the span of 10 seconds in a wide-angle approach to whatever you're watching, close-ups on the actors, and real extreme close-ups on the actors to see the emotional content. Uh, again, uh, a moving shot. Now, directors manage that, but you know when you're looking at a body cam, it's pretty much in one position. Uh, in some cases, it can be pointing away from uh, what the area of interest is. The other difficulty we're seeing with some cameras is they uh, exceed the, the uh, physical abilities of the human being. So if you're reviewing a tape or a digital uh, you know, production of what happened, uh, what you see on camera may be more than the human eye can determine. So there's lots of evidentiary considerations on this, lots of third-party interests, vetting. Uh, if you're in, let's say, a hospital setting uh, and you got your camera on, is that, you say, responding to a call? You know, sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's very complex. It's and very as, complex. As, as you point out, often, and I think we're seeing this more and more, the technology is ahead of the legislation. It's ahead of the actual laws that are written down that you guys have an obligation to uh, enforce, That's right? right. It's, uh, it's very tricky. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Brian's been waiting. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Yeah, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. I, I just have a, 
one general question on stunt driving. I'm kind of curious about this. I'm I'm in my late 60s, so I'm certainly not likely to do that. I don't even drive as much as I used to. Glad to hear but that. S- suppose someone's driving with a friend on the QE or the 403, and the friend says, your exit is coming up right now, and you didn't know that, that it was so soon. You have to pass two transport trucks and maybe two or three other vehicles. And I, I'm dating myself, of course. You're going 100 miles per hour or something as you pass for all of five to six seconds or something, and then you're able to get into the right-hand lane and not miss your exit. So could that uh, constitute stunt driving? It's good to know this. No, Good th- question, Brian. Thank you for that. Go ahead, Chief. Uh, I think what you're talking about is general traffic safety, and you can certainly go to the next exit and turn around if need be. And to place yourself at risk just so you don't miss an exit is probably a bad idea. And I don't know about you, but the size of my car versus a transport truck, if I make the wrong decision, uh, the consequences can be more than a ticket. It can be, you know, crushed to death in a, a multi-vehicle accident. So doesn't really constitute stunt driving. Stunt driving has more to do with speed, over 50 kilometers per hour, and there's legislation in place for that where vehicle gets towed, you get fines. Um, but, you know, general safe driving, making lane changes safely, you want to continue to do that. And isn't that, uh, you know, a, a huge challenge that we have today is this um, lack of focus on the safety of ourselves and our passengers first while we're driving and lack of focus. And some of that is created as we, you know, take impaired driving uh, out of it for a second and just, you know, talk about distracted driving. Uh, Along with the comfort of our vehicles, Mm -hmm. the quietness of our vehicles, the sound systems in our vehicles, we're really on four-wheeled living rooms uh, in a lot of cases and that we get lulled into that a bit don't we we get a little too comfy sometimes behind the wheel i agree with you and i you know we haven't talked about that on this show but what you're quite right the level of comfort inside i've talked about that it's like sitting in your living room but what happens when you're sitting in the living room late at night uh, in front of the television you might just nod off so uh these are considerations and relative to your point about safety understanding what you're doing where you are what are the implications and particularly and we've seen it you know we did a study on the link in terms of, you know, vehicles crossing into opposing lanes. Mm-hmm. You nod off and you're doing 90K if you're doing the limit. Um, let's say you got it on cruise and you pick 100. Uh, your oncoming force with another 100-kilometer vehicle is like smashing into a brick wall at 200K. Uh, not good. So, yes, you're quite right. The level of comfort, the amount of distractions, all the gizmos and everything else on the screens, head, eyes up, looking in the distance, keeping your peripheral, moving your eyes around, checking your rearview mirror. These are all just good, safe driving habits. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Chief Gert, uh, I want to ask you about uh, community uh, or school liaison officers. This is something, I, I, I'm not sure, has it been 20 years or so since this was established in Hamilton? I, it seems to me yep. it's a couple decades old. Yeah, just a little beyond 20 years. That's so right. what, what's the role of a, a school community or a school liaison officer? I want to keep adding the word community to it, but a school liaison officer does what exactly? Well, the community part's not wrong to put in there because <laughs> the schools are certainly part of the community, uh, but it was multifaceted. One was to make uh, police available to kids, speak at a level. Uh, they see us as people. Of course, we play basketball, but we'll do interventions with whatever the issue is on the school property. And of course, there's 
information that flows both from the kids and from the administration. And our fundamental goal is to try and keep our, our students safe uh, as best you can in, in the current uh, you know situations. And we see today some of the events that are going on in Manchester. And certainly our heart goes up to those kids because it really was a kind of a tween crowd, I guess. Yeah, uh, terrible. For Ari- Ariana Grande. And I mean, yeah. uh, just horrible. But, you know, the day-to-day trying to keep... Uh, kids safe uh, and largely when we interact on school properties and we've seen this where you have either suspicious packages or otherwise is both the administration and the kids kind of know what go- belongs and what doesn't that helps us a lot who belongs and who doesn't you know are the kids from other schools causing problems or people who aren't just coming to school and the quick identification of that and I know you and I had a quick chat uh, off uh, off air there about that uh, it continues to be a challenge and so you know again police officers are uh, their duty is to in- enforce law and respond uh, for uh, requests for service uh, just in general just in general do we have a difficulty with school security in Hamilton uh, both uh, in the public board separate board I guess maybe the question shouldn't be, you know, do we have uh, a problem with it? Is it consistent across the board? Do the school liaison officers uh, say it's pretty consistent or is it hit and miss? And is that down to individual school principals? Who, who's responsible ultimately at the outset for the prevention of anything nasty happening in those schools? Yeah, so we have a police school protocol that was developed over those that 20-year period. And of course, that's entrenched now uh, with both boards. Uh, so we have a response to uh, anything from, uh, you know, lockdown to holding secure uh, to a bomb threat is the most recent iteration we just went through and how to handle those, um, what you should or shouldn't do, and even to external threats in the community, uh, you know, that's where the holding secure. Um, there's nothing going on in the school, but there might mm-hmm. be something outside. This is a vast improvement from how it was handled, let's say, 30 years ago where you had no protocol in place. Um, we do train with our schools for those events, and that's mandatory. And uh, so it's come a long way in terms of that security piece. But again, and you and I talked about it, availability is strange just to walk in. That remains, other than making it a fortified uh, process, which I think the school board's probably adverse to, because they want kids to learn in an open environment. It's really this trade-off between security and then, you know, freedoms within the schools. It's a very tough, uh, uh, tough saw off between the two. It just seems that sometimes uh, the the, uh, the school officials, whether they be the principals or the board officials and, and the police, sometimes aren't all on the same page. They're, you know, there's, there's the, a lot of, there's a lot of talk uh, presented. There's a lot of policies in place about school security. And yet some people can just walk into a school, not in every school. Some schools are more fortified, like you uh, alluded to. Others, you can just walk right in. And, and if you're up to no good, uh, you could probably get away with it. And, and the difficulty with that, of course, is that we want to prevent stuff, right? We don't want something happening and then everybody going back after the fact and saying, well, was this procedure followed? Was that procedure followed? Well, no, it wasn't. Um, we don't want to get we don't want to get there at all. Right. Well, no. And I mean, you, you see in the states where they're wanting to I think they're talking about arming the teachers, uh, you know, in certain states where you can have open carry and yeah, things like that. That's a little frightening for Agreed. all of us up here, I think. Agreed. And then the theory is, well, that'll make it safer. I don't know that because if you're not particularly trained in a firearm and the bad guy comes in, and takes your gun away from you. Uh, now you've got a real problem. Uh, so, I mean, carry to an extreme extension, it's problematic. It's always a balance, and I think this is the difficulty. Again, when we see these acts in Britain where they target softer uh, targets, uh, it's that balance of the free and democratic process uh, versus, you know, 
as I say, softer targets. Mm-hmm. We look at responses, for example, to our uh, shopping malls and what might happen there. Mm-hmm. Those are open environments, but we've got to look at what those responses could be. We certainly look at it with schools, and we do rely on the administrators at the schools to do that day-to-day contact. Okay. With a, few, a couple of minutes we have uh, remaining, I want to ask, how, how, do, how do you as the chief of police in Hamilton uh, deal with keeping the officers that are out there on the street every day doing their job diligently, uh, keep their morale going, keep everybody uplifted, and keep everybody focusing on what needs to be done. Yeah, and you, again, talked about it off-camera briefly, but, you know, the whole problem of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, the day-to-day requirements of being in policing, and we first saw, I guess, the emergence of this when you looked at PTSD with uh, military veterans. Uh, we are in a peacekeeping role, very different from the military, but nonetheless a peacekeeping role, and we're often involved in situations where we're not particularly welcome by whoever the party is. Some might like us, some don't, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not positive that way. Um, we look at resiliency and we look at getting our people help in those con- uh, in those situations. So we have a three-prong approach right now. And, of course, there's much work that remains to be done. But prevention, intervention when we see something, and then postvention. So what are you doing after the fact if somebody presents? And it's a larger wellness strategy, not just to get people back to work. That's a key piece. Uh, but also get them back so they can, you know, enjoy their own lives and the quality of life when they're off duty. Uh, but it is a helping profession, like many of them, and uh, we do uh, quite a bit of training on this. Uh, but again, it requires sometimes personal choices about the help you might seek. Do you reach out to your peers, to reach out to your supervisor? Is that done, hopefully, in a sensitive way um, that protects the, you know, the trust and the integrity of the individual while getting the help they need? So much like we do that in public, we also try to do that with our own members. But there's always much work to be done. You enjoying the job? It's a very interesting job, definitely. and um, Very interesting job, he said. Interesting because you <laughs> never really know where it's going to go. You have experience uh, in policing. Uh, but, you know, let's look at the latest with legalization of marijuana. You have a whole multitude of um, things that are interrelated to that uh, to be predictive about what would happen. We don't even know yet. Um, yeah. So you got to stay on top of that. Uh, we talk about it with our members who are on a year or two, and they say, this really is an interesting job and the teamwork and all that. I said, yeah, you know, after 31 years, doesn't really change. It continues. And there's a learning component, in my view, which was always a draw to the job in the first place. It continues to be challenging. It, you continue to have to learn, and you continue to have to develop and take different approaches to things. So if you're a kid thinking about going into policing as a career, you would say what? Uh, two things, and I'm talking about recruiting. You have to have two features, in my view. You have to like people. And that may seem self-evident, but some people don't like dealing with people. So probably not the job for you because we're going to be dealing with people. And the second is problem solving. You have to enjoy problem solving or different approaches to trying to work through an issue. And I can think of, for example, our landlord-tenant disputes, particularly with commercial properties. Hokey, that is really complicated stuff. And sometimes you just have to take a breath and say, all right, is this life-threatening? No. Okay, what is the best process to ensure everybody's rights are guaranteed here? And what's the best course of action? And that requires quite a bit of analytical thought. Well, I know uh, you guys have uh, quite quite a challenge. It goes way beyond enforcing the laws of the land. Uh, you're often uh, marriage counselors, uh, addiction counselors, psychologists, uh, uh, and all of the above. Uh, Chief Eric Gert, uh, always uh, nice to see you. Thanks. Uh, the time flew by. Appreciate you being here it did. today. Thank you, Jamie. Appreciate it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.